William Hazlitt, the English writer who lived between 1778 and、uh, 1830, wrote the following in 1822 about the goal of walking. Quote, I cannot see the wit of walking and talking at the same time. I go out of town in order to forget the town and all that is in it. End quote. My own、uh, walking habit,、uh, which I find indispensable, is very different from、uh, what Hazlitt describes. Instead of happily leaving the town and、uh, reconnecting with nature, I don't really start walking until I get to a park, which is usually a little oasis of calm surrounded by the noise of the city. On a typical walk, I might hear some birds and、uh, perhaps meditate for a while. But there is usually a road that leads to the park or surrounds the park. So that often means that I have to take the car to go to the park. And then the noise of the traffic quickly overwhelms any calming melodies produced by the birds. So, what I want to explore in this episode is the why of this. Why is it that things have changed so much since Hazlitt wrote about walking? Why has it become so difficult to find a place to walk? Why are most parts of the city, in fact, not designed for walking? In this episode, I will explore the history of this transformation with Joseph Amato, who published a book on the history of walking. In 2004, the book was published by the、um, New York University Press. So let's begin with a slightly extended biography of Joseph Amato. I.、Uh... Was a caddy. I earned my literally earned my living carrying golf clubs, and I was an ardent and a, a local champion golfer. So I went on foot. My senior year, I received a major scholarship that paid room and tuition, and even I think bought me some books at the University of Michigan for four years. I would have never presumed I could have gotten in that university. I deserved to get into that university, although I had a, a, a philosophic streak in me, and I did like to read. But、uh, I was pretty shaky academically, I think. But nevertheless, I got, went to the University of Michigan for four years without talking about choices,、uh, which were several and some were interesting. I ended up. In history, but I sealed my interest in history in terms of the history of time, which meant I was particularly interested in historiography, in let's call it the philosophy of history, and I was interested in how we make sense out of time. That I would say was the fundamental project that has always interested me. What sense do we make out of time? I ended up going to Quebec because I'd been preparing French as a language and reading, and I got my master's degree in at the University of Laval, 
in the it was in the old seminary, which I believe was the first seminary of Canada. I walked or trudged through the snow. I was always a walker, by the way. I only got my first car, and I had to get it when I went out to teach high school. I didn't keep it when I went to Quebec, so I trudged through its snow, as I'm doing now in Minnesota when I go out. And I studied there, and uh, I got a, a wonderful scholarship to the University of Rochester in New York, a national defense scholarship. But when it all worked out, I ended up doing my dissertation with a fellow called A.W. Salamone, a well-known Italian historian, an Italian-American. And uh, he was very interested in the dramatic conflict in history between ideologies and fact or event. And that carried over in my selection of a 20th century French thinker, whom some people consider the founder of personalism, Emmanuel Mounier. The doctoral dissertation I wrote had the problematics of however deep one's belief in ideas, don't events dictate to ideas when it comes to the, to the outer world or the political world. Anyhow, an offer came to a small school in Minnesota. As a historian, I went to this small school in southwestern Minnesota, not far from South Dakota, called Southwest Minnesota State College. Now it's a university. Meantime, I was living in a town. We were living in a town of 800 people, and I was going out in the field with farmers, picking rocks, and I got to know the rural world. I was getting to know the rural world. I was very interested in its ethnic groups. I was interested in its environment. I was interested in the change of the technology, the change of farm sizes. And I was writing on just a lot of subjects like demography, environmental history. In other words, I was writing and working under the proposition of what became our rural studies program. While still an historian, I had shifted over in part, not totally, but aside from writing history of family, aside from writing a book on death, teaching a course on the history of sports, teaching the Renaissance, I was assimilating a local place. Furthermore, I traveled to France and Italy in the same early period there, and I was extremely interested in the peasantry. The first reason would be my grandmother and grandfather were as impoverished as they could be, and they were in, the, in Sicily, not on the coast of Sicily, but up in the mountains of Sicily. And so that sets the background. Now that we are um, in this part of the biography, I would like to uh, spend a little bit of time on why you wrote this book specifically. Uh, when I was at this college, Southwest State, after six, seven years, time for a sabbatical, I got a National Humanities grant to go to UCLA. And there I studied with, for one year, I studied with Professor Eugene Weber, one of the finest historians of 19th and 20th century France. He, he and I became companions. After I left the seminar, one day I 
was casting about, and I said to Weber, who is it if I'm going to France I should visit as the distinct historian? And of course, France was filled with distinguished historians. And Weber, much to my surprise, sent me to a man called Guy Tuillier, who wrote a tremendous amount. He was a pure localist. He, he entertained me when I visited him. And at the end of a conversation, he said to me, Il doit être une histoire de la poussière. And my French was pretty rusty by this time, but I think I understood him. And yes, he had said there ought to be a history of dust. So one of my major and first works for the University of California Press that's been translated in a multitude of languages is called Dust, a History. But I treated dust as a history, not as a history of the, the thing we clean, but I treated it as the Western adventure into the invisible and the small. So I used dust as kind of the line between what's visible and invisible. The thesis of that book was the world of the small or the world of the finite is infinite. In fact, it's greater than the world of the, the outer world of the infinite. And the book got a lot of notoriety, a lot of press, and a lot of attention. So here is the larger junction. I was out skiing one day. I was a cross-country skier. And um, I spent a lot of time kind of thinking about peasants and walking on foot and having to carry things. But all of a sudden, it dawned on me I should write a history of how humans go on foot. This takes that large view, which goes with me since my undergraduate history when possible, even join prehistory to history to afford the overview. I, I always like the large overview. So at that point, I said, I will write a history of walking. And that's where the book begins. And in part, it was Twilier with its, you know, there should be a history of dust. It was a history of, uh, in part, it was because of Eugene Weber because he tended to push me from intellectual history towards cultural history. And in part, it was maybe my love for people like Lewis Mumford, who looked at things like the history of the machine, the history of the city, in a, from as large a focus as possible. So that is the connection. But as far as who told me there should be a history of walking, uh, that just stirred up in my brain one day, skiing along a river. I wanted to read a line from the conclusion. Uh, this is on page 255. You say here, quote, like hunting, fishing, horseback riding, swimming, and other activities that were once considered indispensable, walking in Western society and in significant sectors of the non-Western world, has become increasingly a matter of recreation, sport, or health, an expression of style and even a vehicle to make a political statement. In the last two centuries, walking on the whole has passed from the realm of necessity into that of choice, uh, end quote. 
So I'll stop there with the quote. Uh, uh, so we have this wide historical vista here in this quote, um, and this is, by the way, in the, in the conclusion. I, I wanted to ask you to unpack uh, this a little bit for us. Uh, this uh, summary seems to point to a type of tragic trope. Um, there's a sense of loss here. Walking seems to have disappeared from many parts of our lives. Um, so now it's it's a kind of, I guess, uh, almost a fashion, um, you say here, an expression of style. Uh, but it's also a vehicle for political activities, as you, as you say here. Um, and then that definitely also health, of course, and recreation, sport, uh, things like that. So what I want to ask you is, uh, how did we get here? What is the, the, the longer uh, what is the longer history of walking? Uh, give us a slightly more detailed view um, of that uh, history. Oh, yeah, it's a wonderful summary you gave. I'm quite satisfied with that connection. So in a way, I'll just fill in without going chapter by chapter, but fill in the main ideas. The first thing I want to underline is the book is titled On Foot. It's purposely titled on foot to stress the biological rooting of us as human beings. Walking already tends to get somewhat abstract. We can distinguish many types of it. But what I was interested in at the very beginning, and I had to study to learn about this, I was interested in what does it mean that we're bipedal, that we go on two feet? When did we go on two feet? What did walking, going on two feet, do for our eyes? And what did it do for our hands? And it began to give us a new, for instance, coordinate between the immediate and the far. That's a marvelous thing we can do with our head up. We can look at the tiniest little particle. There you hear the dust book in play. We can look at the tiniest visible particle between two fingers one instant and look up, glance, throw our head up and focus on the most distant star. So I wanted to contemplate the effect of going on two feet on our total physical but also mental being. I mean, you might want to argue, as somebody in a history of smells might, that by going on two feet, we in part lost the use of our nose. But then somebody else might argue getting those ears on an erect creature really gave us a tower for our ears. So I wanted to try to place the body. That's point one. Point two is human beings did not move on the landscape usually without I'm going to make two points here. Without having to climb, slosh, wade, stomp, nobody had paved roads. There was nothing smooth. Perhaps a beach walk when the sand was just right was relatively smooth. There were some flat rocks in the upland where the walking was smooth if you didn't hit a crack. But broadly speaking, walking was one thing, but going on foot was far different. That was a very important point for me, that the landscape or the surfaces of the world were not experienced as level. We traveled across them 
at the most rapid, which was the speed the Roman army went on in an eight-hour march, the, Brit uh, the British army, more than 2,000 after, went on three-mile speed. That was the speed of a marching army, three miles an hour. Uh, occasionally, you'd get runners or people who would go faster. But our speed was often slow. But then the second point is, most of us who walked, and that's in the beginning, that's 99% of us, and it rarely gets below 95% until we get into modern times, we carried things. We carried jugs of water. We carried spears. We carried uh, poles for our housing. We were far more familiar with a walking, not cane, but walking staff or stick than just about any other object who could tra uh, traverse the countryside in the past without carrying something and having a walking staff to help them wade a river, keep their balance, maybe ward off a bad thing. <laughs> I mean, a walking staff can be used poking a thicket, a move back the grass. I mean, a walking staff is a marvelous instrument. Then when we get to civilization, I'll jump to Rome. You might want Samaria. You might want Egypt. You might choose one of the Athenian one of the Athenian poli. But basically, there weren't smooth ways. Uh, that line in the New Testament makes smooth the way for the king. Only the kings got smooth things to travel on, and they were usually small and weren't so smooth either. They were kind of laid down rock. So civilization went on foot. By the time you get to the real, some of the tribes that are settled and doing well have built in their everyday life on foot. They have rituals, be they celebrations, serious ceremonies. Then when you get to aristocratic ages, people begin to put their foot on display. They have more than a rough sandal. They begin to have a, a smooth shoe, maybe a slipper. And then you start to get the middle class people who walk for pleasure. They walk to observe nature, to collect plants, and some walk actually to explore whole areas. So walking still goes on. But walking is under will, it's under pleasure, it's under direction, it's often later with a map, with a compass, and walking becomes chosen and regulated and purposeful. Walking, in all the different ways I use our foot, begins to differentiate. That quote that I read from uh, page 255 points out that walking has become a choice, um, which means that prior to our period, it was not a choice. So walking was a necessity in the past. You, in fact, uh, talk more about this in, in chapter four. Uh, you have three really interesting chapters that uh, follow one another, four, five, and six. Um, in chapter four, you describe this shift from the view of walking as a necessity to walking becoming, as you say here on page uh, 103, something that has, quote, intrinsic worth, end quote. Uh, so walking becomes this non-necessary independent thing, 
walking becomes an act of recreation. Uh, I think that the title of chapter four gives us a sense of how you perceive this shift. Uh, the title is Mind Over Foot, uh, Romantic Walking and Rambling. Uh, so this is about the shift towards a more leisurely type of walking, romantic walking. Um, then in chapter five, you talk about continental walking, exploring continents on foot. Uh, and then in chapter six, you talk about city walking. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about these shifts uh, from the romantic idea of walking to continental walking, and then finally to city walking? Europe's population is fundamentally rural in most places up to 1800. And in a lot of places, it's 60, 70, and 80% rural up to 1900. The rural world basically goes on foot when it works, goes from wherever a person lives to village or if they don't live self in the village. So with the Industrial Revolution, which comes far in advance of the railroad, with the commercial revolution, which even comes in advance of uh, the Industrial Revolution, these revolutions get to gather people. The primary gathering place of a men, and meantime, the population's getting larger. These new immigrants who come to cities or factories and cities are coming from the rural countryside. The explorers, the dreamers are coming already generally from the comfortable or established families of the middle class. And then there are even those who come from the courtyard, the courts, and their gardens and their garden paths, who end up too in cities as city walkers. But basically, a whole new population is going to a new environment. And then in the history of the cities, it's only in the course of the 19th century that they make walking generally a thing you can do. They uh, later, at the end of the century, they light up the streets so you can have a good time at night. You can go out after dark. <laughs> you can play. You can amuse yourself. You can shop even at night. They arrange the new department stores that only come at the end of the 19th centuries for foot traffic. So the city starts fairly raw. If you were in favor of sidewalks, cement sidewalks, you were kind of a revolutionary. If you were in favor of getting rid of uh, drains and sewage lines, I mean, su uh, yeah, sewage lines right in the city, that was very advanced and only comes at mid or that so, uh, mid-century or at the end. And in the smaller towns, some of that doesn't come until almost mid-20th century, where people begin to put their sewage in pipes, their water comes in pipes. They no longer have slippery boards. If you go to any of these towns, uh, out in even the American countryside, and you drive around, you'll find some place called Boardwalk. And boardwalk meant that you were probably going over a wetland, a slough, and you were going on boards. 
Well, boards are slimy and slippery and horses break their legs on them. What I'm driving at is walking was not tame. It was a burden to do in the city. But even if you're a worker, you can't necessarily take public transportation, which itself doesn't come until 1870, 1880, depending where. And the public transportation costs money. Well, most workers can't afford to give up their daily wage to daily transportation. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I wanted to um, go a little bit further in time. Um, I wanted to kind of go beyond, um, I guess, the 18th and uh, 19th uh, centuries and, and look at what you talk about in Chapter 9, where um, it, it's titled um, Wheels and Wheels. Cars, right? Uh, so you, you have a, a lot of interesting passages here. Now, on, on page 239, you, you point out something that, that's very fundamental here, I think. You talk about the car, and, and this goes back also to what you said about the walking stick as well. Uh, Here, let me read this brief quote from 239 at the bottom of that page. Um, You say here, more than any other machine, the car, which introduced the 20th century, spelled the end of walking. Lewis Mumford held it responsible for, quote, the end of the pedestrian, end quote, in this century. So, again, there's a way in which... um, the car as a sort of technology um, is is it's similar to the stick in some ways. I mean, it's it's a tool, right? It, it it's just a, a very basic tool that helps us move around, kind of like the stick. Um, but in this case, it, it actually spelled the end of walking. Um, so so I guess what I what I wanted to ask you is uh, a little bit about how you said that that walking has an impact on, on, on how we sort of measure things, right? So it seems that the car completely changes this. So it becomes, uh, things are measured sort of by using the car as the, the underlying uh, measuring tool, right? So it's this many minutes uh, of driving or hours or whatever it may be. So because it established this new way of measuring the world, and because it sort of ended walking in some ways, as, as you uh, write here uh, on page 239, um, is walking now seen as, well, let me, let me not maybe propose ways of, of, like, I wanted to ask you what you think about that. So, you know, uh, in this age of the car, what has walking become? Is it, is it a way to go back to a, a different sense of, of time, a different sense of measuring space? What, what does it do? Well, you know, let me, if I, I feel required to go back, though, to put a couple material premises in place before we get to the car. One is, I said that before, but I'm going to stress it. You need smooth surfaces. Wheels only run well on smooth surfaces, as any any group that pushes cannons around the countryside in the last 500 years, no. Wheels wheels don't go everywhere. So you had to have the wheel to carry things. How many things do we put on or push that have wheels on them? 
That's extraordinary. How much did the train uh, anticipate the automobile? It was on wheels. It was driven by an engine. It had frightful crashes when they crashed. But it, it could run or very quickly got up to 40 miles an hour, which just about put all ships all walkers, horses, which aren't really that very very good anyhow for continuous travel. They're better for very slow travel, pulling a cart, but you can't even pull a cart if there aren't somewhat smooth roads. So we had to get to controlling the environment. We even had to get to road engineering. There's a lot of things that we had to do to, and I'm making a play on words, to get level. To get level with our being, we had to level the world. Then the automobile that comes when there's workers with extra money and there's people even with more free time And there's even people looking to take trips. Oh, and there's a prestige, as there has been for 5,000 years, to sit rather than ride. I mean, you think of uh, the kings that get toted on other men's backs while they sit in their chair. All of that goes with the car. I don't quite agree with uh, Mumford that it fully ends the pedestrians because the car is a way to deliver you somewhere, and then you can walk around and go shopping. So there's an odd way in which the car can deliver you to the park where you want to walk. But the theme is walking is getting in every way more segmented. It's understood more as a matter of politeness. How does your foot look? Or it's understood as something that satisfies the ego. Or today, most people in some kind of exercise program will see, see walking as the base of our well-being, as the very base of our well-being. In other words, it sets your, it can be good training for your heart, your resp- your whole respiratory system. It can be good for your muscles and with a little twist here or there. It can be good for your whole frame. So there are people that see walking as a way to a full selfhood. There's other people that continue to see walking as a way to escape the crowd. And there's another group that still walks to want to be home at alone with itself. And yet, still, all around us, there are people who walk out of necessity. There, there are still walkers in our society, but their numbers are very few from the car owners who can usually drive to where they walk. Now, looking at all these different um, periods together, uh, so again, to, to me, it does seem that there's a kind of um, tragic trope uh, in this history because of the, this, again, uh, quote that I read about how walking has been to some degree marginalized it's been it's been pushed aside it's not a necessity anymore um one has to be sort of convinced that this is good for health and and you know that's that's why a lot now, of you're walking again or your podiatrists your ortho right or you get a recommendation you, you need to walk more or he needs to repair your knee or something else Right. So I wanted to think a little bit more broadly about all these different periods. And I wanted to ask you if there is 
something like a golden age of walking uh, at, at any uh, stage here. Is there some period here that um, was better for walking than other periods? Well, it's hard to say because it's so dependent on what your wealth was, what your class was, what your status was. Uh, I mean, maybe if you had a nice neighborhood back in the 1920s, just before the car really came to the city neighborhoods, it just starts in the 20s, just barely starts and doesn't make its way fully into the downtowns and neighborhoods to the 40s. Maybe. That was an ideal period because they had level surfaces. They had the sewage up and away. There were enough private bathrooms that people did not dispose of themselves on the street or along the street. And uh, there were enough stores with windows. You could imagine what you, who you could be by looking in the window. You could meet your friends on the street. Uh, they could walk down to the city park and there might be a band shell and they could listen to a concert. A lot of the uh, European cities with their evening stroll, eat a nice meal and go for a stroll, renew your acquaintance. That was a golden age of walking if there were, if there is or were such a thing. I think that uh, this is a good place to stop. Um, so thank you again so much for this conversation. Well, you're, you're quite welcome. And... Um, Again, a brief reminder that uh, this audio essay and conversation will have a brief follow-up. And uh, in this segment, I will ask uh, Joseph Amato to recommend uh, three books related to this conversation. Uh, and we'll spend a few minutes on each book. 